Hello, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Today we're going to be talking about the new Shogun 2 expansion, Fall of the Samurai, and how it opens sort of a new frontier for the Total War series, and where it needs to be better. Uh, joining me today is our old friend, freelance writer, Phil Cameron. Phil, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, and we also welcome, for the first time, PC Gamer staff writer, Tom Senior. Tom, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Uh... So we've all written reviews of uh, Fall of the Samurai, and it looks like we're all pretty happy with it. Um, Tom, why don't you why don't you get us started with what's new here and what makes Fall of the Samurai a little different than you know stuff we've seen before in Total War? Well, essentially, the campaign is moved three hundred years on from the events of Shogun Two, and it revolves around the Boshin War, which was essentially uh, a war in which uh, traditionalist forces within Japan fought. Uh, against the influx of new technologies from abroad uh, and essentially it was a huge turnaround in terms of the technological makeup of the country and that affected the warfare uh, throughout the period of the Boshin War. So it would start out uh, as fairly traditional close combat warfare and as guns came in, as the bigger cannons came in, as Gatling guns came in and as more of that technology kind of flooded in uh, through trade that slowly changed the face of war and slowly changed the, the fortunes of the two warring factions within Japan at the time. So there's traditionalist forces and there's uh, kind of the new uprising forces. And essentially, the new campaign is that narrative told over the course of a total war campaign. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much how it pans out. Um, the kind of new technologies they bring in are... Uh, some of the really big stuff like Gatling guns and some of the large cannons uh, are some of the most advanced weapons that have been in a Total War game. And there's some enormous stuff. Uh, they bring in artillery, uh, which is easily the most devastating weapon that has ever featured in a Total War game, I think. Easily. Uh, it has the power to obliterate entire units if you use it correctly. And it's kind of ludicrous in a brilliant way. Uh, there's no way it's historically accurate. <laughs> when you call in this artillery, it's it's almost like a flare drop, so a small fire lights, and it you get this enormous World War One style barrage that can take out entire units and um, lay armies to waste. So that's a lot of the the new stuff that it's really brought in. New technologies like railways as well on the campaign map. Uh, that's a bit of a game changer. But really, it's kind of for me a lot of it was amalgamating a lot of the stuff that. Shogun 2 did really well in terms of that melee combat with some of the stuff that former Total War games have done really like the gun combat of Empire and Napoleon and trans transitioning from one to the other and that's really kind of what Fall of the Samurai is all about Yeah, what, what Fall of the Samurai does is really it's this intense compression of like military history because when it starts you kind of pick up almost not quite where you left off in Shogun like gunpowder units there on the battlefield but they're really not very good uh, I mean, they, they're still, like, the samurai can still close the distance and chop them up with swords before they can get more than a volley off. Um, as we all learned from that historical document, Last Samurai with Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not the Boshin War, just uh, so we're clear. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, but just in the space of, you know, just after, like, 20 or 30 turns, you've got this, you've got a completely new era uh, sort of landing on top of the old one that is that creates these really stark contrasts. You're right. Like, you have you have just unbelievably powerful artillery, and yet samurai archers are still there on the battlefield. Phil, did you did you feel like the, the balance here worked? Um, well, there wasn't a balance. That's kind of the whole point. Um, you've got this huge shift from swords to guns and that shouldn't be fair um, and that kind of you get that across in the entire game is that um, guys with guns beat guys with swords and if you've got a cannon on your side and they've just got some guys on horses you're going to beat those guys because you've got a great big <laughs> cannonball um, and I thought that was brilliant especially when you do start doing the sieges on the castles and you've got cannons on your side and suddenly these defences that were built to defend off hundreds of guys are getting torn apart by cannonballs and bombardments um, and it just it feels like Almost, it almost feels like cheating when you've suddenly got all these um, great technologies, um, and in a way, it kind of is. And that's, I think, that was how everyone felt at the time, which is quite a nice mechanical um, and thematic marrying, um, which is done in the game quite well. But there are some things which it fails on, I think. So you elaborate a bit on areas where where you think a, where where you both think it stumbles a bit. Well. I um I actually didn't know that much about the Boshin War before I went in, but I started to um, look into it, and 
the way it's set up, it's got you've got the Shogun on Shogunite on one side and the Imperials on the other. And the Imperials were worried about the foreign um, influence of over Japan, and the Shogunites were kind of not so worried about that. And they think that it, to progress as a part of the world power, you needed to um, sort of welcome these foreign forces in. And that's somewhat um, represented in the game mechanics in that when you um, upgrade your technologies, there'll be a modernism price, and people don't like modernism, they prefer traditionalism, and so you get all these revolts in your hands. But that's exactly the same for both sides, and one and that's um and the Imperials forces were actually more advanced than the Shogunite forces, so I feel like there could have been an easy as like an interesting asymmetry between the two sides and that's just not there. And you end up just being having the um a geography war rather than a idealistic war and that feels feels a bit like a failure to me. Yeah, that's that's a good point actually. It's you know, it it's difficult when it was so so I did the same thing. Like when I started playing this game, I definitely started looking up the Boshin War because uh, basically all I knew about it, I think, the, the, what 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 very little I knew about it, uh, probably came from like the Rurouni Kenshin anime series that I watched <laughs> years ago, uh, which again, uh, like the Last Samurai, may not actually be that helpful in understanding the politics and birth of modern Japan. Uh, but so looking at the Boshin War, though, I mean. From what from what I can gather, at least the 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 Boshin War, even if you include um, a couple revolts that followed a few years later, it was never this bloody. This is this is sort of a Boshin War on steroids, as yeah, if it, like it goes yeah. the direction of the uh, American Civil War. What's really interesting, I think, is that um, Shogun Two was also always about hyperbole. Um, they were, like if you just look at the way the art style is done and the way the fights are laid out, they're trying to engender a um, mythology and a sort of legend feel to it rather than accuracy, which is something that I don't think Total War always aimed for. And so, I mean, um, Tom was talking about how the naval bombardments are completely ridiculous, and I kind of feel like that's to get across this idea that they are so overpowered. Um, so I think maybe that's one of the reasons why it's so extra bloody, and also the fact that it's a video game and so blood is fun. Um, <laughs> as it is, but yeah, and you've also got this huge prep period before the war actually breaks out, where you're trying to get as strong a position as you can, and that necessitates war essentially, because that's what total war is. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point about the the relationship between total war and history has always been a really interesting one. It's a strange relationship, and it it sort of seems like with with every iteration of this game. Someone else is getting upset, you know. Like, if you, if, you know, there's always going to be someone who, like, I know this period, and this game's this game's bullshit, uh, which, which isn't, which I think in a lot of ways misses the point. But I think Creative Assembly kind of set themselves up for this because, in advance of all these games, they go to such pains to talk about like the historical record they're working from and the, the the pains they're taking to make it accurate. But then you see the game, and you're right. Like, the de you know, naval, bomb naval bombardment is like the equivalent of having, like, a Star Destroyer in orbit. Yeah, and you see guys flying 50 feet up into the air, and it's just laughable. <laughs> I think um, there's always been, there's been a struggle recently with the Total War series where sometimes it wants to be a sandbox game, um, and sometimes it wants to tell its historical narrative. And those two things often bump into each other. So Empire was this vast sandbox, and it really embraced this idea that you could take control of the Matha Confederacy and then go over to Europe and take over Britain. <laughs> right. And the world map at the end of that is just bonkers. It's absolutely nuts. And it, that was really part of the fun of the game, is that you get to completely change history and create your own alternative history. Um, whereas we've seen with a lot of the DLC that's followed and the direction that they took with Napoleon, and increasingly the direction that they seem to be taking is building up these quite coherent narratives around the campaign and actually forcing these plot points as you go along. Um, and that doesn't really fit when your objective, the, the actual objective, you're, the stated objective you're given at the beginning of the game is just simply capture 14 territories. Uh, it feels like they're stuck in this in-between land where they offer you all this interesting narrative historical context, but you're still just capturing a certain number of territories. I think they're kind of trapped because the the game is called Total War, and the problem with that is that um, history is so much more than just the wars that are fought. And they, as much as they put in diplomatic um, systems, it's never going to equal something like Crusader Kings, where it's all about the relationships between people. Um, and I think uh, Shogun almost like went in a step in the right direction with its um, the personalities it built with your. Um, agents and everything, but it's still it's still about the fights, um, and you, there's only so much you can do historically accurately when you're dealing just pretty much purely with fights. Um, so yeah, that's probably one of the main problems they've got. 
Yeah, the incoherence is right there in the name, really, like Total War. Like, if you think, like, what Total War actually means, that's a modern 20th century concept. Uh, the idea where the entire, like, power of the nation state would be thrown into the war effort. And all the periods that Total War simulates are before that concept really exists. So it's always been this sort of, like, uh, what if you know, scenario where what if these countries existed for no other purpose than to wage war on each other? And that's sort of where the game starts from. But then they do try to weave in, yeah, these little, these slightly more coherent narrative elements. And I think it bleeds over into the strategy. Uh, Because, yes, at the start, the game just tells you, you know, capture, you know, you know, 14 territories, and among those 14, there have to be, like, these three, because this is, like, you know, your, your, your empire's historical objective. I'm quite interested to see whether either of you have ever actually played to those objectives, because whenever I play Total War, I, I don't even pay attention to them in the slightest, I just play that's it however it, I want to play it, and see what happens within the time limit. Yeah, I play it exactly the same way as Phil, actually. Um, I, I never play to win Total War. Uh, I kind of find... Uh, it's kind of a fault of the game in a way that those objectives feel meaningless to what I'm actually doing because uh, what I'm really doing is building myself an empire, getting into some really interesting fights and uh, in more recent Total Wars creating these really interesting characters in terms of generals who then get their character, tra- character traits and actually become characters in, in this interweaving narrative and it's actually kind of for me the, the pleasure of it is watching that unfold and uh, getting into these scraps with my neighbours that have no relevance to the overall objective or even the overall story which is kind of one of the reasons I keep going back to Empire because because it gives you the complete freedom to do that um, and there comes a point where if they tried to force you into this historical narrative um, that you, you sacrifice that and it really depends how you, I mean, Rob, do you tend to play two objectives? Do you find, do you play the same way? Or it might just be that different people approach Total War in a completely different way. Well, I do, I do pay attention to the objectives because I think it, it can be, uh, especially when you're playing the short campaigns, like you're up against a time limit and you really have to figure out how you're going to win this thing w- within the time limit. And I, you know, and I think uh, Shogun and, and, and Follow the Samurai are, are very good in making that actually kind of difficult to do. Uh, so 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 I do tend to pay attention to that, but ultimately, you're right. You don't actually you don't even really need to pay that much attention to it because just in the process of playing your normal way, you will conquer the territories you need. Like it's almost you know, it's almost impossible to conceive of a game where you will not accidentally fulfill the objectives <laughs> as you play however you wish. Especially uh, in Shogun Two and Fall of the Samurai, just simply because of the shape of Japan. And the way it puts you, you know, the, the way it arranges all the, all those factions, it basically puts one faction at one end, uh, the other team at the other end, and forces you to fight in the middle. So you're always going to go down those same paths, and you're always going to conquer the same territories in the same order, in a way. Uh, even if you're picking a different nation on one side, uh, you'll still find yourself going down the same routes and capturing similar territories. I, I will say, and, and, and we're totally off in a, on a tangent as far as like this, uh, Total War games <laughs> in general, but I love that. This is, I, I could talk about this series all night. Uh, I, I think it, perhaps one of the best examples they had of like an objective that actually changed the game in interesting ways was Medieval 2, the requirement that you conquer Jerusalem, uh, that, you, that you hold the Holy Land uh, by the end of the game if you're a Christian faction. Uh, I, I thought that was, that was an interesting twist, because if you were playing like a Western European power... Uh, you know, and you just play your normal way, and you carve out, say, a huge empire spanning, you know, England, France, parts of Germany. Uh, you know, then you come to the end of the game, and you're still nowhere near being able to just walk in and take the one objective you need to, com- to complete the game. Uh, and, and so I, I thought that was that was an interesting case. That was it's very gamey. You know, it's a, it's a very contrived uh, uh, contrived way of, ha- of handling an objective. It, you know, there's. You know, there's no reason why controlling Jerusalem would like make you, you know, defender of all Europe. But there you go. Uh, and yet, I, I thought it was it was it, it encouraged you to have these desperate like last gambles to to reach an objective. Uh, and and to be fair, I think you know again as the time limit comes down in Shogun, I certainly think that sometimes you start to have to expand uh, a lot faster than you would necessarily be comfortable with if you're just playing an open uh, open ended way. And I, and I think um, Fall of the Samurai does a quite good job of focusing you halfway through the campaign because you suddenly have to join a side or go independent and that creates this sudden um, crux of the entire game where you suddenly become part of this war machine rather than your own autonomous nation. Um, 
which can make things a lot more interesting and focused um, once you've established yourself. Um, the other thing I was going to mention is that do you, do you guys feel like the fact that it shifted from half years to seasons, um, or like three month seasons, um, make a massive difference to the way you played the game? Because it seemed to condense everything massively. Huge, when I was playing it. huge yeah. difference. Yeah, I I thought it was a major change and one that I enjoyed personally. Actually, um, I, f- I felt as it, it felt a lot more realistic to me. I felt a lot more attached to what was going on simply because. Uh, in the previous Total Wars, a turn would be an entire season. You click the button, and suddenly everything was snowy, and your troops were dying. And then you click a button, and you know, you'd be you'd, minutes later it'd be summer. This it gives you those the, that really kind of by slowing down the pace of change on the world map, it gives you that, that a better sense of place, and really affects the way uh, I felt about what I was doing. Also, those longer winters do have an effect if you're leaving your armies out there oh. in the cold and they're losing men, and uh, it, it becomes far more of a factor the seasons themselves. Yeah. It completely changes how you have to plan your campaigns because there's the sense that like, you know, so you notice like how movement suddenly shortens a lot as the autumn rains arrive, right? Your, your armies, your armies just moving around like slugs in the autumn compared to the way they're sort of like darting around the map in spring and summer. Uh, and you know that now, like, not only is your army moving slower, but you can't campaign effectively in the winter. Uh, if you are, if you try to wage a campaign all throughout, what is it, six turns per season? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So if you, yeah, so if you have your troops out in hostile territory in the winter for six turns, you are going. That army is going to be a ruin. Mm. Uh, and so there is this sense that you have to, you, you know, you have to meet your objective. You have to destroy the enemy uh, before the snows fall. Because otherwise you're going to have to fall back to friendly territory, and he's going to have an entire, you know, six turns to rebuild his army, and you will basically have wasted an entire year. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's a huge difference and a, a great one because you're you're exactly right, Tom. Uh, previously, it was like, okay, there's winter, uh, and then you just click the button, and winter is over. It's, it it doesn't even register as a real as a, as a real obstacle. Yeah, I mean, you just know that every few turns you're going to have to deal with a bit of attrition, and that's it. You know, you can't ever think about, oh, I'm going to foray in here and then get out of it, but you, you just have to put up with it, and it makes it a non, non-mechanic in a way. It's quite... Um, I find myself playing differently during the winter months than during summer months, like the type of warfare change. So um, if I'd often find myself halfway through a campaign when winter arrived, just because I'd lost certain uh, battles that I'd expected to win, or there were setbacks, and... Uh, I'd be forced to retreat, but I'd then deploy my agents to actually attack the resources of the, the province I was trying to take down, and that would actually um, injure their economy to the extent that they failed to rebuild their forces during that season, then come spring, sweep back in and then take it. And it added this whole extra element to the way I planned the, com- I planned the campaign generally, and it was just a really fascinating twist um, that I really wasn't expecting because it, on, if you put that on the box you really don't think that's going to have a big effect on things but. Yeah and you almost don't notice it for the first year or two um, That's right thinking, oh, This is just taking a bit of a long time and then suddenly you realise it's affecting the entire way you play the game Yeah yeah. I, I noticed that um, you know, for me during the winter months I became uh, far more devoted to the amphibious assault uh, where you just sort of you know stab into enemy territory, land your troops, run up to the castle, and and try to uh, you know try to try to take a bit of terrain. Um, yeah, so so that was you know that that was a really good uh, you know that, that was a great change, and certainly it, it brought parts of the system parts of the system that I never really used before um, you know into play, and the agents and navy I think are are, are two really crucial examples there, uh, because this is one of the first games where I really felt like the agents were adding something to yeah. the game, and this is one of the first games where uh, my approach to having a navy wasn't just build one super fleet and then sort of kill everything in my path, uh, yeah, which is how I've won every other Total War games war at sea. Yeah, and there's so many so many agents, and they all do so many things now, like they've all got very good defensive and offensive abilities, and you can build them so specifically for each one, or try and create like sort of a super agent. Um, which means they're much more useful um, if you build them right, which is interesting, especially with the foreign agents when they come into play. I found that um, Full of the Samurai did a really good job of giving you big economic targets to hit with your agents. Um, there are railway stations and fully upgraded ports, the international ports, uh, are so expensive and so important in terms of generating trade and uh, giving the AI that kind of troop movement. And the repairs for those objects are so expensive that 
they're they're incredibly valuable valuable targets if you can sabotage them. So having those bigger targets made the agents feel more relevant. And actually, um, in defensive terms, uh, I I would have actually have to station armies near train stations to stop the AI from nipping in there and just completely scuppering my my plans for getting my troops to the front line. And that was that added an extra element as well because it forced troops out of my castles and out of my big population centres and into the wilderness to actually you know defend key points and actually made the spaces in between the cities more relevant really so you actually had to guard your rail lines i did do that yeah because it cost thousands of gold to repair them and um i find myself having only one or two major cannon factories that you know they're so expensive and take so long to get a cannon factory up to that top level where it can produce the gatling guns and the biggest cannons in the game and those the railway was so important for getting those uh, to the front lines, which were miles away by that point, because I'd started building them at the start of the game. So the railway was actually incredibly precious the way I was fighting, and so I'd guard those points. It, it, not with a, like a, a huge army or anything, yeah. but just a, a few troops and a, a junior general, and they'd have occasional combat, and uh, that occasional combat would give them experience, and that would improve the generals as well. So it was it added a really interesting element for me in that respect. I, I found the um, the rail yards to be almost completely useless to me. <laughs> the way that um, my uh, provinces were set up. They, I, I always had one um, station in the wrong province in one of the enemy provinces, and I'd uh, need to request yeah. military access to get through there, and it just made them completely useless to me, which was yeah. really frustrating because it looked like they were going to be like a game changer when I started, oh, and then I ended. And then I realised that I can't place them myself, and they got really frustrating. <laughs> spending all this money upgrading them, and I suppose the trade income was good, but being able to move my troops around would have been brilliant. Well, yeah, that's, see, that's the real see, price. Yeah, for me they were. For me they were actually. Uh, crucial because uh, so so I had a fairly large contiguous empire uh, in in uh, northern northern Japan uh, and so just to <coughs> defend from uh, one side like to to defend both sides to defend all my frontiers uh, you know if you try to keep uh, if you try to keep a bunch of standing armies around, your economy will choke. Uh, the upkeep uh, costs, upkeep are, costs are, are prohibitive, uh, and and uh, total war really has made upkeep uh, a much bigger factor uh, since uh, Napoleon onwards, where you just can't you can't run the kind of armies uh, that you used to in the series. Uh, so what the railroad let me do definitely was, you know, so I would keep my troops actually sort of, you know, during times of peace, I would keep them sort of toward the center of the empire and then when something happened on a frontier i would just like everyone load onto the trains head out there and the space of a turn you know i had basically all the way to my military facing whoever was next uh which was uh which was really cool and uh, you know again like it was really exciting to see that because that you know that that's that's 19th century warfare uh you know i mean like uh you know prussia the, the Prussian military basically designed and laid its uh, railroads for this exact purpose because they realized that, you know, it, it was this it was a huge advantage uh, when it came time to deploy to fight an enemy. And this was something, I, you know, I, I think uh, Shogun uh, Fall of the Samurai does really well. But, Phil, I, I did notice that in your review you mentioned that it, it sort of pins you to the stations that are just kind of randomly scattered around your provinces. I'd imagine that they're historically accurate stations, which is why they're, they're, they're basically there from the beginning of the game. They're there as telegraph spots, um, and you can only upgrade them into railways, so you can never place your own railways. Which is was really frustrating for me, because obviously I wanted to connect them in the way that I wanted, so that I could have the speed to get through all my provinces if I wanted to, but um, the way it was set up just didn't allow that. But obviously if you build the right... I suppose it, it incentivizes taking certain provinces, but when they're your allies, it's quite frustrating. <laughs> well, your allies... Your allies should let you. I think you, you still need. I think maybe if um, your trade allies, it's different than if your military allies or something. But basically, I just couldn't get through. Well, my and allies they still need territory. to build their railroad. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, some do, some don't. Uh, but you know, you know, Tom. I think it was you who was who was just mentioning that you found yourself. You'd only have like a couple of the high end cannon factories, mm. uh, and, and that's that's another thing that comes up and follow the samurai i don't think i've ever felt the economy required as much specialization and planning as it does in fall the samurai and that's not least because um the modernization cost for each of these units is massive if you get one of the factories so you want to have as few of them as possible otherwise you're going to have revolts in your hands yeah that was a major uh, issue as well um 
the revolts I never felt they were persistent uh, an persistent annoyance rather than they're never on the, they're never threatened to bring down my empire but you know a, a roaming army of samurai would suddenly pop up and it was just something I had to deal with and then you know it, it, the whole uh, the dissatisfaction element uh, where you more you modernize the more angry uh, your proles become basically and they then they uprise against against you never felt especially devastating i was i was fairly happy to uh ignore it for the most part i mean i'd i'd have lots of build lots of repression structures in my cities to try and keep things in check but it perhaps wasn't as uh you know devastating mechanic as they intended i I found that um as i got near the end of the campaign it sort of reached an event horizon where um they'd got so annoyed i just couldn't build enough repression places to keep them satisfied that i ended up with this huge revolt in my hands that i just couldn't handle um Uh, and uh, luckily we were in war at that point so we had loads of armies going through which could just fend them off but if i'd been on my own i think i'd have been screwed at that point yeah it's um for for me it was persistent annoyance is, is a good way to put it and i think uh, th- that's probably it functioning as intended because persistent annoyance when things are going well, when things get a bit dicey, it becomes actually a major problem. Uh, yeah. Go on. yeah, it's possible that I never quite reached that critical stage that um, you've encountered where there are so many that I, I can't deal with it. I, I don't think I've had uh, a re- rebellious uprising actually take one of my towns before, um, but maybe I, was, I just moved up the tech tree a little bit slower. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I, I suspect it makes it easier for enemy agents to provoke a revolt, because uh, that that was the big hazard I was starting to run into is uh, the enemy would start running a lot of um, a lot of I think shinobi I think uh, not shinobi um, Mitsudos? The, yeah the state policemen basically oh, yeah. uh, would run them in run them in my province and create a revolt and the revolts were serious business and they they, they were usually that seemed to start happening in provinces where that were heavily modernized um but uh no so so but what what i noticed happening was yeah the, these high-end structures are so expensive that, that this isn't you know in, in shogun 2 it was this this thing where you would sort of like every new territory you captured became like your forward operating base and you built a bunch of true production production uh structures there and then you would expand from there uh, this is a game that is very much like you only have, you know, a handful of places that can actually produce the best units in the game, and the rest, like I found, the rest of like the rest of my empire sort of had to be structured to pay the bills for those locations, so I could keep upgrading them, uh, but also. You know, so I so I'd have to think about like, is this is this place going to build like the modern artillery, or is it going to be where modern elite infantry are going to be produced? And I have to I'd have to think about that. Is this going to produce like, is this going to have modern trade structures? Uh, because you have to offset all of this with like happiness and repression structures, uh, which I, I thought was actually pretty interesting. Um, but again, I think it, it could have been more interesting if they played around with either of the factions with it like because the imperials were supposedly more modernized and i feel if their um if their cost for modernization was less but they weren't allowed to have like the foreign trade ports which was such a big boon to the shogunites um i think that would have been made it much more interesting to pick which side but as it was it seems um quite redundant i don't know the 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 modernization angle uh as far as like which side wants to be modernized it's it's kind of weird and this this thing i i have a hard time sort of uh, sussing out, really, I guess, about the uh, about the Boshin War, is it seems like both sides are happy to employ Western technologies. Uh, you know, b- both sides were historically like happy to employ Western technologies. It, it, it just seemed like they like the disagreement was really kind of a one about the political future of Japan. Where whereas I, I, I'm not sure I'm not sure it was as clean as this again the last samurai model where it's like, you know, <laughs> the, the samurai are off in the hills, uh, still practicing the old ways and the Emperor yeah. is just like, let's build railroads and machine guns. But again, um it's it's that Shogun hyperbole thing where I feel like if they emphasized the differences between the two, it would have made it much more interesting. like you would have felt like there was a conflict there, but as it is it's just like you're told that there's a conflict and you have to buy into that. I think by the state, by the state, you know, by the time you've got these insane bombardments and this kind of deliberate hyperbole in in the combat system, I'm happy for them to apply that to the overall narrative context of the campaign as well. And if you, if you can make it into this, like the setup and the, clearly was to have you know it be 
the guys who buy into Western technology and the guys who are more traditional. And that was kind of, that's the opposition between the two factions. And if they'd have embraced that a little bit more and offered some alternative objectives for um, the Shogunate forces and the Imperialist forces, that would have enriched the campaign and actually made it, it would have made more sense. And given how much effort they've put into creating this historical narrative, uh, it would have de actually delivered on that in the in the end game as well, I think. Um, by the end, it, it felt like any total war battle and I lost sight of what the overall context of it was, to be honest. Um, it never really kind of followed through for me. Um, and in the end, I was just trying to capture these territories. And it's, it's kind of, I still had a lot of fun, but I still feel like they haven't quite nailed that problem. Um, so that, that it's a difficult one to solve as well, because it, um, they could either go the empire model and just give you an open objective and let you create your own story, or they can... Um, actually plunge into it and decide this is going to be a story but a story driven campaign and we're going to have these narrative elements these game changes that will pop up every now and then and there will be an end game that reflects the uh the kind of mythology we've built up around this and it's, it'd be interesting to see them come down on one side or the other i don't think fall of samurai did i think it was kind of trapped in between them which is why the campaign wasn't quite as satisfying for me as it could have been do you um, did have those random events that would happen where, say, um, the shogun were getting pissed off at the fact that they couldn't um, couldn't have their swords anymore because it was all getting quite dangerous, and you get the choice whether you're going to allow them their swords or you're going to make it only police, and there were a few of those different ones, but um, they never seemed to have a huge effect. It was just like a one one time bonus. Whereas I think if the resistance, um, all um, rebellions were less equipped or something, that would have been much more interesting. But again, that's a lot more work for um, creative assembly to put into the game. Well. The other thing is, is going along with that, it, it just feels like another Total War game uh, by the end. I, I think this, and even to an extent Napoleon, uh, sort of struggled with this. As far as the diplomacy goes, on the one hand, they kind of want to create the situation where there's sort of a realistic diplomatic uh, scene go, you know, going on, where someone needs to... you know, So, so in Fall of the Samurai, it's, are you pro-emperor or pro-shogun? And the people who are in the same, who are aligned the same as you, uh, you know, sort of by default like you, and the people who have the opposite alignment uh, hate you. Okay, uh, and, and that's all well and good. Like I think it can be a little dull because you know it's it's you know basically it's it's, it's a two sided conflict and sort of diplomacy uh, sort of takes a back seat. But then things get a little weird as you close in on actually, like, winning the game, like, as you come close to achieving your objectives. And then it's like the AI factions sort of wake up to the fact that there are game objectives. And then suddenly people who, theoretically, they're on, your sa on the same side, your relations are great, uh, but now you're, you know, say, four, four provinces from winning. And everyone just sort of turns on you. Uh, despite the fact that you, you're theoretically, like, you know, we're, we're all on the same side here. But they turn against you, and suddenly it turns into this uh, Shogun-like, th this risk-like moment where everyone gang up on the person in first place. And I'm not sure, and this happened to me in Napoleon, too. Like, I mean, I, I was Prussia, and I'd, I'd fought Napoleon to a standstill. And then suddenly Russia and Austria uh, just decided, well, forget Napoleon, we're going to destroy Prussia. Um but the, but so a lot of total war games have this have this weird problem where it's like they try to create this historical context for diplomacy, but then at the eleventh hour it's like well but there's also a game mechanic that the AI needs to be concerned about and now it's going to try to stop you from winning, and I I always I always sort of like stumble on that stumble on that dissonance. I think the problem is that um, total war games tend to have a weird difficulty curve where it's um, it peaks in the middle and then um, tails off because. You it, you sort of build yourself up and nobody cares about you and then you start getting a bit strong and then they start to turn on you a little bit more and you have these tough wars but then by the end of the game you're in such a strong position that um, you could effectively um, just waltz your way to the victory line which is why they need to put in this sudden turning of all your allies on you just to make the game difficult again and have this climax where that doesn't necessarily fit um, in any sort of rational sense because these are the people that have been your friends for hundreds of years. Um, and it's, it is it's it almost feels like a a letdown when the game suddenly turns itself into a game rather than this um, world that you kind of lost yourself in for however many hours. I think um, Rome was uh, did a good job of providing a really good historical context for uh, you know the collapse of Rome itself was such a dramatic moment in that campaign and completely justified and completely made sense historically and that was um, just a fantastic 
uh, version of that. And I think they've been trying to replicate that ever since in different ways and haven't quite hit on the same success. They haven't quite found the right context or they haven't quite delivered um, in a way that makes sense. As you say, it feels, it feels arbitrary that suddenly your AI, AI companions would attack you. Um, the, the reason is simply, as Phil mentioned, to provide that difficulty in, in the end game and actually force you to fight it out, you know, to actually have total war until the very last turn, instead of just gradual, gradually crushing your enemies underfoot. In, uh, very, it is satisfying to do that, but it's not challenging. Yeah, I I feel like though um, in a strategy game, it's it's almost like your reward is is the safety um, of an ensured victory by the end of the game. Like you've you fought your way through it, and you kind of deserve to be able to just relax a little bit and <laughs> yeah. enjoy yeah, your yeah. end game. Yeah, <laughs> sort of retire and sit on your squatted stool and the auto-resolve phase of your campaign. <laughs> that's, yeah. right. that's right, auto-resolve campaign. It's <laughs> a victory. Yeah. So. We should we should get into the action on the battlefield because uh, it's I think it's very different and I was actually surprised at how different it feels even from games like uh, Napoleon which deals with the same sort of uh, you know mass formations of you know firearm wielding infantry. Um, so I mean, did, did you guys did you guys feel that this successfully differentiated itself from uh, Empire and Napoleon? Yeah, definitely. It's because it. Um... With Empire and um, I actually didn't play Napoleon, but with Empire certainly it's it starts off at that point of line infantry. I mean there is a few melee infantry around, but um, here you have th you you witness the the shift in a culture and um, technologically from guns to um, from swords to guns, and that makes it feel so much more dramatic. Especially seeing as you're mopping up troops that are still clinging to um, metal weapons. Yeah, this is um this person was the most satisfying part of Fall of the Samurai for me, that, that transition from one type of warfare to another uh, was really well done. Uh, I think it was actually, a, it, ultimately it was a transition from Shogun 2 warfare to Empire warfare uh, but the bit in the middle, just when you're on the cusp, where as you say these um, really elite gun, gun troops are, are really expensive uh, until you have enough territories to actually sustain them and in the end game you have loads of them and it's basically Empire. Um, but in that in-between period, just just before that, where you you're forced to use these uh, katana samurai to defend your uh, just a couple really really important really expensive gun units, that that was um, absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed where that went. You know, from scrabbling around with peasant armies and and bows and really basic units to uh, finally getting some guns and having to protect those guns, but still fight these this old form of warfare. I, I still use my cavalry to ha harry the enemy and applying all those old strategies to this different battlefield with with these enormously powerful weapons more powerful as i've said before than any other total war and it, it was just found it incredibly dramatic now for me that sort of really sold the entire campaign I and mean, I, was, I was happy to forgive its kind of narrative failings and uh, and the rest of it just just for the way the battles evolved over the course of the campaign and what was really interesting is it sort of forced you to think even more tactically than any previous um, Total War game. Because if you are, you end up with these melee, um, these like sword cavalry or spear cavalry, you've got to use them because otherwise they just use us on the battlefield. And so you've got to think really carefully about how I'm going to get them to the opponents without them cutting me down with their guns. And you end up using forests a lot and really heavy flanking tactics. And it just made me feel like every victory felt a lot more satisfying um, if I managed to use my melee troops more effectively than I would have done otherwise if I'd just been playing Shogun 2. I think it all goes back to um, what Phil was saying earlier, where uh, basically the entire campaign is really honest about how overpowered guns are. And uh, actually, it gives you that underdog feeling. If the, if the enemy has guns and you're having to work around that, you, that's a really interesting strategic puzzle. And it's actually, it feels much more like you're a master general if you beat those odds. And that's kind of, that's a really precious kind of, that's a really precious uh, victory, I think. Yeah, and even when you're using a a mix of modern and uh, samurai units, I I think that that role of generalship is is still is still there because, um, you know, to neutralize the other guy's firearm units, uh, you could just have your troops you know mass up and exchange shot for shot you know and see who see who's still standing, but I I noticed the same thing that you did, Phil, where like suddenly you're you're playing this game much more like. Where you're seeing if you can like slip a unit around using a hill for cover or something, or like move through the forest and then burst out right on top of some riflemen, uh, because 
you know, as good as rifles are, you know, once the range comes down, the guy with the sword still has all the advantages. Um, and, and so I, I thought that that worked really well. Uh, what I one thing I liked that was very different from Empire, though, and even Napoleon. I kind of feel like Empire and Napoleon were guilty of hedging their bets a little bit about changing like Total War gameplay from what it's always been to adapting it to to gunpowder. Uh, because in those in those games, while everyone was armed with a gun, every battle still came down to melee. I mean, even even Napoleon, like you know, by and large, like you know, units would exchange a few shots, and then they would just sort of charge into each other, and it was just classic, like total war guy. It was like armies full of like really terrible spearmen, basically doing battle. <laughs> um, and that was actually a little disappointing, you know. Like again, because I kind of like the period, and like you, you know that like by the like by the Napoleonic era and onward, like the use of the bayonet is just plummeting. You know, like it's it's. You know, the, the, the hand-to-hand fighting every war gets uh, less and less frequent. And I kind of feel like, you know, Creative Assembly was too hesitant to say melee warfare doesn't really happen in a meaningful sense between infantry anymore. And I kind of feel like this is the first game I saw where, you know, firearm infantry can actually, like, break an enemy charge just through firepower. Uh, it doesn't have to come down if you you know if you are well like, deployed. You don't have, you don't to, have to fix bayonets. And that's a glorious moment as well when you have a full-on samurai charge at you and you just let off one volley and the whole thing just falls apart and they run away. One of favorite. Really, um, uh, one of favorite unlocks is the uh, kneel and fire ability. Yes. Yeah. And that that is just incredible. As soon as you unlock that, um, any melee unit charging your guys is just going to get absolutely obliterated. And just watching them do it with that kind of discipline and yeah. seeing these well-drilled guys actually annihilate someone is incredibly satisfying. I, I can't yeah. stop zooming in on those animations. <laughs> they're like, I'm spending every battle, like, once I've finished like, putting all my units in the right position, I am just, like, down there ground level, watching my guys load and shoot. Yeah, um, I remember blood, in... Um, sorry, you go. Um, the blood mod for Shogun 2 actually works with um, Fall of the Samurai as well. So oh, if you, does it? Yeah, if you if you if you've bought that, it transfers across, and you don't have to pay anything extra. It just works. Um, so if you're a fan of um, making those <laughs> horrible mow down moments even more bloody, then um, the blood I mean, packs. I have to buy the blood pack. <laughs> <laughs> um. One thing I'm curious about: Did either of you guys use the direct fire abilities on your Gatling guns or ships? Because yes. I, I didn't even use it once. <laughs> I, I mean, I used it once for the review, but I, I thought it was. Um, just a gimmick. It didn't really add anything to me. It's stupid, but it's kind of good. That was my reaction. Tom, what about right. you? Well, I think uh, I found completely useless for the ships. Any ship that was tall in any way, uh, would, I, it would completely obscure my view of where where the cannons were going. <laughs> uh, like it, I couldn't see through my own ship to actually shoot the thing. I was I was trying to shoot, and it just didn't work at all. Um, the Gatling guns. Um, if you, if the guys are close enough for the Gatling guns to be relevant, then actually your, your attention needs to be on the battlefield as a whole because everyone's really close and you're going to have to do some manoeuvring and actually pay really close attention to what's going on. What I used to use it for was before, you know, that that's long, slow march that can happen, uh, before you get within range, I'd just man one of the really big cannons yes. and just start lobbing uh, huge, ambitious shots just over hills and bouncing off things. And you kind of, you just weird cannon trick shots that's anything that I could uh, try and do to take out a unit and get that extra advantage and it kind of made those opening moments of uh, which can actually be quite dull in Total War where the guys are slowly marching towards each other that bit more interesting um, but I never found it really offered a strategic advantage in any way I had a couple great. battles where one of my gun batteries had miraculously like racked up 600 kills <laughs> Maybe, and uh, maybe I just wasn't aiming right. Well, the the aiming actually is, I think, the biggest problem with this, in that it doesn't remotely feel like you're aiming a cannon. Like there should be a feeling like mass and weight and <laughs> like setup time for this. And what it feels the most like is like you're playing quite like Quake or something, where it's like this ultra twitchy. Like you can't you can't quite hold <laughs> steady if you breathe while your hand is on the mouse, then your aim is thrown off. It's uh, like the, the idea of getting twitch headshots with a cannon. Uh, yeah. It's, it um it is I think it's just Creative Assembly don't make shooters and they've never made shooters and suddenly they're having to try and uh and as you know most people who play games have played shooters and understand what good shooters do well when it comes to the feeling of firing a gun and the weight of a weapon you're firing uh, and maybe it's just a, a lack of experience in Creative Assembly's part like the they're incredible at strategy games but when it comes to first person stuff they need a bit more practice working it I did I did 
I did wonder whether it was any sort of reaction to the Men of War series because that's obviously something they've done mm. quite a lot in those. Um, and I was wondering whether they feel at all like maybe if they're heading towards more modern times, they're going to be a bit feel a bit threatened by that. Um, well, the strength of those games. I also saw those ominous quotes, I think, in Eurogamer a couple weeks ago, where uh, one of the Creative Assembly leads was talking about there's no reason the series couldn't work on console, which I thought that was a rather <laughs> odd statement, because I can actually give you several reasons why it couldn't work on console. Yeah, it's um, about 100, so 100 reasons. <laughs> yeah, so, so I... Anyway, kind of... No, so I just look a bit askance at sort of the direct control thing, which, yeah, it reminds me a bit of, uh, you know, Men of War. It also reminds me a bit of Toy Soldiers. Uh, t- to be honest, right. and I kind of question... It, it, it's it's a nifty feature, but ultimately it kind of felt like it was in the wrong game. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, I think when, really, in a yeah. game where... Um, sorry, in a game where guns are so like new, any sort of speed with them seems a little incongruous and not really in keeping with the theme. But I, I, I do want to tell you like about one naval battle because I think it actually worked a little bit in the naval, a little bit better in the naval battles uh, just because being able to really quickly control your speed and heading uh, to bring your guns around a bear uh, that actually did make a bit more of a difference. But I did have one naval battle where it was like horrible weather and this was a rare example of like the improved graphics of Total War actually having a meaningful effect on combat and this happened on land too where like the fog effects and the build up of smoke over a battlefield <laughs> becomes like an impediment to command and so I had this I had this fleet engagement in the middle of a like driving snowstorm at sea um, very you know hot, like high waves lots of fog uh, you know snow or sleet or something and just completely lost track of everything that was going on. Uh, so I could, not, I could not see the enemy units, uh, just sort of maneuvering blindly. So I just took over my, my healthiest uh, frigate, basically, and was just sort of sailing around trying to see the enemy. And I, it, it turned into this really atmospheric, like, uh, you know, master and commander-esque, like, chase through the fog, where, like, I would be watching and I would see the enemy's, like, muzzle flashes dimly through the fog, and then I had a place to aim, and I would shoot back, <laughs> and I was able to start figuring out, like, where they were, and it was this, it was this rare moment where, like, it was, uh, it was the rare, excellent naval battle, for one, so I was, I was thrilled to have one that I felt like it had, you know, had been uh, really worth my time. But it was, also an, it was also a case where I felt like having the option to take control of the ship actually made the experience a lot more atmospheric and made a meaningful difference in the outcome of the battle, uh, just because suddenly it sort of put me in the shoes of, uh, you know, of the ship, basically, like the here were the conditions that my troops were up against, and could I work around them? That um, that sounds really awesome. But in t- like, I had never had a good experience with the naval battles. Um, I think they're they're better than they were in Shogun, and uh, ever since they made the ships, um, you know, the, the ships in Shogun Two, obviously they they propel themselves. Ever since they got rid of wind, that was brilliant. Yes, that was I, I couldn't I could just couldn't control. The ships at all in uh, in Empire, and uh, they're finally self-propelled, and that's great. And you have more control over them. But I still feel like I'm just kind of waving them in a direction and desperately trying to get them to turn and trying to get these broadsides. And I've never had the feeling that I've executed a strategy and actually outwitted the enemy or actually really effectively applied a strategy in a naval battle. It, it always feels too slow and too sluggish and too out of control. Um, Though they do, ex- there are a lot more explosions now. So it's actually it's a nice spectacle, <laughs> but uh, I've never felt any, I've never got any strategic gratification from the naval battles, which is quite quite a big problem for me. I I ended up also resolving them. I, d- I did have a good go at them, never quite clicked. I I sort of felt like one nice change at least was that because ships are so expensive, like my my usual certainly the high level ships once you've like got ironclads. Yeah. Um, steel plating and such. Pardon? Pardon? Those, those ships are incredible when you when you see them actually fighting when they got these guns. It's ridiculous. Especially especially, especially the foreign, especially ones. foreign ones. Uh, yeah. the, the, the the British warrior class is just um, you know, insane. Uh, but I, I found that um, you know, so so in every other Total War game, my strategy has been create a huge stack of ships, sail it around, kill every single other enemy ship. And hey, you know, the trade lanes are safe now. Don't need to worry about this part of the game ever again. Um, 
what I found happening here much more often was that if I tried to have like a super fleet that like nobody could defeat, uh, yeah, I could auto resolve with that fleet, but it was never where I needed to be. Like there was always some other trade lane that was under attack, uh, and and so what I ended up having to do was uh, disperse a lot more and have ships sort of a lot of small squadrons like guarding trade lanes. Uh, and then those were battles I, I could I I rarely felt like I was quite safe to auto resolve, uh, and and so I ended up fighting a lot of them myself, uh, just two or three ships. I I do think there's there there are some basic problems with uh, the naval battles. Like I just don't think naval combat I don't think is ever going to be as interesting as what's happening on land. I mean, there's no terrain. You're you're fighting a battle with no terrain. I think you're absolutely right. By definition. Uh, ship combat is going to be quite slow and quite ponderous and it's about trying to wrestle these enormous metal things into the right position and that's always going to be frustrating and the, the explosions are great but it, I, I can never shake that kind of oh, why won't you just move faster why won't you I'm trying to get around this guy and get the, just the right broadside it never happens it never feels like I'm entirely in control of my fleet um, it, it was just it didn't feel good well, and their fleet controls are really bad. Like your controls for individual <laughs> ships are fine, but trying to get them like to sail in formation yeah. is just yeah. is just a nightmare. Like try like try to get a a try to like get a get a command group to change speed and heading like as a group, and it's it's basically impossible. They will not respond to those sorts of orders. They constantly screw it up. Uh, and so you end up having to what what like every battle you know for me comes down to me just sending a bunch of individual ships sort of swarming around the enemy and vice versa and it's just, and it's just a melee it's the same it's not so so different in the um in the in the terrain battles though like it's not very easy to control your entire um, army at once you have to um divide it up into lots of little units or groups of units that um you're going to move around like you can't really maintain your formation as you move because the terrain changes and that means that your formation no longer can be applied in the same way it was and I found that quite frustrating when I was playing it. Yeah, you know, actually I don't understand why they keep trying to ram army group formations down our throats, to be honest. They're terrible. I mean, they're they're almost never appropriate uh, for like as a way to deploy your entire army. Uh, whereas what could be useful, I suppose, is like again, a, a better selection of, uh, you know, like subgroup army formations, uh, where it's just a bit easy, you know, like column, line, you know, yeah. double line. Uh, that that doesn't work nearly as well uh, here as it, has, as it should, because it, it keeps trying to force this idea that you can just band select all your forces and put them in the formation that's right for you. And that's just not Total War. It's also, when the formation is that big, uh, once they're actually in that formation, and you right-click and it's just watching that formation slowly deform as some of, them, some of them go over hills and some of them move slightly slower as they go through forests until they come out of the other end just a complete useless mush <laughs> of random guys in random lines pointing in different directions. Uh, uh, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it, it's, it's not a, you know, that's never going to win you a battle. It's actually fairly useless. I had um, one or two times when I was assaulting a castle and there were a bunch of bridges um, to get to that castle. And I'd send all my guys over at once, and I'd have maybe 70 or 80 guys get stuck underneath the bridge, and that <laughs> unit would therefore not be usable at all anymore, because they were waiting for the rest of the guys to get to them, and they were just stuck under the bridge, and they couldn't move. And that was really, really frustrating. <laughs> I don't understand. Creative Assembly keeps, like, their, their, their unit AI has never figured out how to handle, like, small, like, be terrain features, like bridges, um, or You, you see this all the time uh, in siege battles, constantly. Um trying to like the corners in the in the wallway if you're trying to line up uh, a unit around a corner so that they're covering it uh, like they they <laughs> nope. they get into so much trouble <laughs> i like i don't understand how they managed to fail to stand in a line at a right angle and look yeah. outwards so it's that they find new and creative ways to fail to do that every time yeah <laughs> it's, just, it's like yeah you just amazing. stand at this right angle and you like half of you shoot left half of you shoot right will be fine and they won't <laughs> fucking do it yeah it's just a good thing you can blow those walls to hell now with cannons. <laughs> that was my, the most cathartic experience, was just creating a nice flat surface for them to walk on instead of <laughs> these tricky little bits. There's also thing like, I have come to suspect that Creative Assembly is intentionally keeping their AI from using artillery appropriately. I've really come to suspect this, because when they bring, when they bring heavy artillery to a siege battle, 
their first shots are pretty accurate. Like they, they know where to shoot. They're blasting into formations. They're tearing down defensive, uh, you know, parts of the castle, knocking down walls. But then they always attack prematurely. Like while the shelling's going on, their units just sort of lunge forward and try to sweep the walls. And then if you've got a big castle, you know, artillery will actually not, like not be able to get in range of like the inner courtyards without moving it. And the AI just like won't move it. Oh, uh, which is which is really frustrating. But I, I've really started to suspect that Creative Assembly just doesn't want to like bore players by having artillery like rip their formations apart from long range and, and like you know, the AI just hangs back and lets artillery do its dirty work. Uh be, because, like, in, in Fall of the Samurai, I see too many signs that, like, the AI has a rough idea of what to do with artillery. It just won't give it time to wreak havoc on you. Uh, whereas yeah. you've always got the advantage of sort of sitting back and watching artillery, you know, take apart the enemy. But where, where it just kills this game is, is, these, is these wretched castle assaults. Um, I mean, they're, they're kind of fun. Like, I mean, I like watching, like, you know... A, like a group of 100 guys kill like 800 like that's cool but it doesn't it, it is a little frustrating when like the the biggest enemy army like is storming the castle and you're like all right well here we go and i'm just going to destroy his entire army me and my 400 guys are going to kill like 2500 yeah i think um yeah they have a problem with spilt ship battles where just the very nature of siege warfare is actually uh, the guys stand outside the walls and they whittle down the guys inside the walls with yeah, it's attrition basically. based, which isn't it, that fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which isn't fun and isn't dramatic. And they've tried to condense it by um, they've got a fairly strict time limit on siege battles, don't they? I think where you, you have to get inside the walls and capture the points quite quickly, which really forces you to uh, throw your men forward in these suicidal assaults that you would never ever do if you're a real general. Uh, you'd never just throw your men at the, at the walls and watch them get massacred as they climbed up it. You'd you'd sit back all day long for a week on end and try and starve them out and try and gradually break break their walls down. So it's it's that kind of it's an artificial setup and it's it, it never feels quite right because of that. I think. What's interesting is that there is still the option where you can wait them out, but um, with the elongated years that um, Fall of the Samurai has, it's even less of an attraction because you know that as soon as winter hits, your guys are just going to be screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you end up being pushed into the assault much, much more quickly. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work uh, that well. I mean, I think the siege battles are, are certainly better than they've been. I thought, like for instance, uh, empires were just atrocious. Um, just a new special achievement in terrible siege battles. Um, but I mean, I they for, got a lot, go on. They got a lot right in Chogun Two when they um, created these segmented castles. And yeah. th- th- that that was a far more interesting challenge to, to both defend and to attack than uh, your big traditional uh, fortresses and empire in previous games. Yeah, and, and and to be fair, like I've had a lot of exciting fortress battles. It's just the it, like they're too lopsided against the AI because it won't take its time, uh, which again is it's one of those it's it's one of those tricky areas where yeah, it's not fun to sort of sit back and watch the AI like bombard you into dust. But that's what artillery does. You know, yeah, it's, and it like would encourage you to game. sally out, which is something you never do at the moment. Um, like, there's no, never any benefit to leaving your walls at the moment in um, Full of Samurai. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're much better just sort of staying in there and waiting for the AI to wreck itself on your walls. But so, but it does it. But all of this, looking looking at what this game has done, I I do kind of feel like. You know, the, like the way it handles rifles, the fact that like long range artillery is able to get on the battlefield, and it's it's hugely powerful, but I don't think it quite like uh, shatters the game balance. Um, not quite. Not quite, and, and certainly the counter battery fire is really important. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that can completely devastate your navy if you. Yeah, I mean, so so I just I, I kind of look at this and I and I kind of feel like you know this game takes place in the 1870s. And I, I kind of look, you know, at Europe in the 1870s, you know, pre-World War One Europe, and I think, you know, it's got a lot of the components of a classic Total War game. Uh, you know, still a lot of great powers, uh, still like a lot of things to do battle over. I mean, yes, a war never actually, a, a big European war never actually happened in that time period, uh, but that's never stopped Total War before. I'd be um, more interested if they were doing um, something like the Scramble for Africa because that seems much more um, of the sort of war-orientated 
um, setting that they were looking for. What setting? The um, Scramble for Africa, which was during the same period, like the um, mid to late 1800s, where the major European powers were just fighting over Africa, like the different parts of it. Um, they were, like there was very few, like ma- a few major altercations there, but you had stuff like the Boer War and um, the Congo and all sorts going on. Um, I wonder if that's what they're looking at. Sort of, but I think you run into the pro- I think you run into the, like, the Rourke's Drift problem, uh, which is like I mean that's not. Like, I mean I'm sure it'd be awesome for one scenario, like oh no, you your column's been ambushed by ten thousand Zulus, uh, but I think the fourth time you kill ten thousand Zulus, you're probably going to be like. I think I'm ready for a real war now. Maybe. But I, I, I think settings like that definitely... What I can never figure out when I look at the Total War series is it's so dependent on, like, big blocky formations of troops. And anytime the AI, like, sort of has to think for itself, like crossing a bridge, um, you know, scaling a wall, fighting along walls, they, they've never quite solved that problem, and the further forward you go in time, the bigger that problem gets. Like, you know, by the 1870s, the Germans aren't even fighting in, you know, massed formations anymore. They're, they're yeah, it's, it's ironic as, as war gets bigger, the um, sizes of troop formations and battles themselves get smaller scale, um, and that's not something that Total War does brilliantly. Yeah. So I mean I don't know like I I kind of I kind of look at Fall of the Samurai and I think okay this this series could this 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 actually maybe they could go further forward in history and cover you know like industrial era uh, warfare uh, in much more detail but then I I kind of think about the art you know <laughs> the insane naval bombardments uh, the the castle sieges and I kind of wonder like. Are they ever going to solve? Like, are they ever going to find a way to make all these pieces come together? I, I'd be worried about them going much further into the future, uh, because I think the way they're going to have to uh, reshape uh, more modern warfare to fit the total war formula is going to feel more and more forced as they uh, the, the further forward they go. Um, if, they, if if you do have like creeping artillery and the kind of technology that can actually shell an army to death, um, and you start to get Closer and closer to trench warfare, that gets so far out of the total war model, and you know the way the battles are structured, um, that it doesn't seem like a direction they they would go in. Uh, to me, yeah. to me, it, it feels too. They'd have to change too much of their own system or uh, adapt uh, more modern warfare in a really false way into the system they already have. And I'm not sure it'd be a sensible move for them. But at the, at the same time, like I mean, how many medieval games can you make? Yeah, that's very true. I mean, certainly Rome's due for a refresh. I, I would lo- like the series is really series good right now. I would love to see what they could do with the uh, with the Roman setting again. And certainly Rome, like early Rome and the uh, fall of the empire, are really interesting. Well, they could even go a little bit further back and have um, the Greeks. That'd be yeah. interesting. Yeah. I'd, I'd be interested to see if they did something even more outlandish, like went further with the idea that they were going with Shogun Two of the mythology and the legend of it, and just started going crazy with with what the Greeks were like. Herodotus was talking about and Plato and everything, and see if they just went completely macro and absurd with it. I think that could be really interesting. And the thing is, like in those stories, war was all the time, and that fits the total war idea. So maybe that would lend them more uh, freedom to do what they want. I think one of the things that uh, really impressed me about Shogun 2 was that uh, very conscious artistic direction that they showed with it. They, uh, mm. they, as we mentioned earlier, they, they weren't just trying to depict realism. It, it was clearly influenced by you know the painting and the art of the time. And just the very colour palette itself was uh, unrealistic and utterly beautiful. And I adore the kind of that coherent aesthetic they created for Shogun 2. I think it's something they, they haven't done before. But that, that would they could apply that to an even greater scale to that that Greek period, and that that could be a really really interesting and actually really beautiful campaign to play through. I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's something. Another thing is the sorry. Carol. I was going to say the the closer you get to the reality, the less freedom you've got to do something as artistic as that, really, because um, it's so fresh in people's minds, and so to do any sort of big movement from it um, is going to be conflict with what people's ideas are. Yeah, and I, I and I think that's very much the. Um, you know the 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 problem, as it were, that that the entire Total War series faces. They've they've kind of mined out a lot of the a lot of the settings that they're naturally built for, and and I do kind of wonder, like, you know, you can you can push farther in the forward farther forward, but you run into those problems where yes, you'll you'll have to make it more and more contrived to make it a Total War game. 
uh, or you can take it in these outlandish directions. But you know that that would be a major departure. I do think Shogun Two, um, you know what you what you pointing what you're pointing out about the style. Uh, I think they could do it. I mean, I lo- I loved the I, I loved the um, style of Shogun Two. I love the fact that you know it would have those odd like. Um, you know, like lyrical interludes, uh, where you were like the the fa- like the faction annihilated uh, animations, uh, animations, where you would see like, yeah. where you would see, where it would start on the uh, you know someone committing uh, seppuku uh, among the cherry blossoms, but then you would see the reality of the destruction of the uh, of the faction. I, I I love the way it sort of set up this dichotomy between like the the illusion of um, you know the the samurai code and then you know the way the reality often worked. Um, so, so yeah, I, I I think it would be it would be really interesting to see, you know, not necessarily like, you know, the Herodotus example, like outlandish history, um, but it would be it would be a major departure, and they would have to they would have to get away from sort of the pretense they've always made of making historically accurate games. I think um, for that that series, I think a lot of the fans of Total War absolutely adore that historical accuracy element. Um, I think they would risk alienating. That, that kind of portion of their player base, if they were going to go too crazy with it. Um, I think we, we just see we see from the Total War mod scene that um, so many mods are uh, created uh, to try and make the latest Total War more historically accurate. Um, we've seen it since you know Total War Center is full of these mods, uh, things like Euro- Europa Bar- Barbarorum for Rome, through and, and Darth Mod is designed to make it more challenging, but it's also supposed to make the battle's more historically accurate overall. That's, that's a major aim for modders. It's one of their biggest problems with the game. But you also have mods that turn into Lord of the Rings or Warhammer, which <laughs> are as well. just as popular. So I think either yeah. way, you're going um, to gonna lose fans and gain fans no matter what direction you go. <laughs> and I feel like the people who are really um, stickless for historical accuracy aren't going to be playing Total War. They're going to be playing something like Hearts of Iron or Victoria or yeah. Crusader Kings because those are the games that really um, aim for that. I-, I would love to see a... Warhammer, Old World, uh, Total War. <laughs> yeah, that'd be perfect. We can dream. Total War, Shadow of the Horned Rat. Um, all right, well, that about does it for our discussion of Fall of the Samurai. Uh, what's our verdict here, gentlemen? I, I think it's a very good Total War game. I think with the problem, all the problems we've got with it are tend to be systemic of Total War games in general. So um, if you like Total War, you're probably going to like Fall of the Samurai quite a lot. Um, yep, yeah, I would agree. It's, it's a very good expansion. I think it uh, takes a lot of things that they've done before and merges them into one campaign, and in a really interesting way. And that evolution of combat that you experience over the campaign is is really compelling, and it's uh, beautiful and full of massive explosions. So if you like those things, you'll also like it. Uh, yeah, and I I really hope we we haven't uh, been too nitpicky uh, about this game. I know it's a temptation when a, when a bunch of reviewers get together and start really analyzing <laughs> yep. the shit out of a game. Uh, but I I really do um, you know practically adore uh, Fall of the Samurai. It really adds a lot of things that I've long wanted to see in a Total War game. And uh, yeah, Neil Fire Infantry. I I think yeah. that, that pretty much right there is the price of the mission. Yeah, uh, justifies the price of the mission. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, joining me for this great conversation, and uh, hope to have you back soon. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Tom. Thanks, Bill. Good night, everyone. <laughs>